Welcome to Truth Transistor Radio. This is the most awesomest podcast of all time. I'm your host, Rob Hedrick. This podcast is brought to you by Proverbs 1618. Pride going before destruction. Hello, True Transistors. Welcome to part eight of my, uh, or episode eight of this podcast, which uh, will be the first part of a series of a review of the William Cooper Mystery Babylon uh, series. And I had edited it down to like under two hours. And I'll leave a link for that that I put on my YouTube channel. Um, but if you really want to get in depth, I'll also leave a, a link for uh, his full podcast or his full uh, a series of that. There's a lot of details that I don't get into um, that I think are are good to learn. But I wanted to to get the necessary what I feel figured were necessary points in in the two hours. And so that's what this episode is going to be about. Or at least the next few, because I don't think I can get through two hours plus commentary. I'll, I'll be adding commentary to it as well. So it'll probably take about four, three or four episodes. I don't know. But first, um, here at the uh, in the intro here, I'll talk a little politics, which I haven't talked much about yet. I haven't said much about my views on politics I think maybe in the first episode I mentioned that I supported Ron Paul. So let me just state a little background of my political views. As a Christian, um, my values, and I understand why many Christians are Republicans, because Republicans claim to be pro-life. Uh, they claim to be against you know gay marriage, uh, which is you know both. Uh, Christian values and also another Christian value is if you don't eat you don't work so in that regard uh, I can understand why many Christians are Republican and I was for a long time as well and my values haven't changed much but I started to realize there was something corrupt about the political system you know maybe 12 years ago um, you know I was already starting to see some of the conspiracy stuff related to Bible prophecy and beginning to open my eyes to the, the possibility. But I was still a staunch Republican. I, I thought there's a lot of moderate Republicans that existed, uh, that have existed, you know, and even Rush Limbaugh acknowledged that some of them were moderates. But he would say, well, the moderate Republicans are better than Democrats, is how he would put it, you know. But, um, so I was kind of uh, seeing that already, but then I began to notice, you know, I think it was in 2008, that there was the uh, bailouts and, well, there was the market crash and then the bailouts and the Republicans were, I can't remember which came first, I think the Republicans were completely for the bailouts in the fall 
of 2008 and the Democrats were against it. And then six months later, it was the opposite. So, you know, uh, six months later, there was uh, the Democrats were for a bailout and the Republicans were against against it. Meanwhile, Ron Paul was against it both times. Okay, I keep having these glitch issues. So I keep having to stop and pause and start over. Not start over, but like, anyway. Um, so I noticed that Ron Paul was against it both times and he had a very consistent message that I began to realize. Uh, and I've started listening to him. And everything i started to pay attention and everything he said made a lot of sense some of it i already knew like the federal reserve and at first i think it was 2008 the first time ron paul ran as a republican uh, at first i was voting for uh, mike huckabee because he was against the federal reserve but then ron paul pointed out some things that he uh, did differently as a i can't remember as a governor or what but that he voted differently at times that were not conservative, like for raising taxes and the state level and things like that. So, um, and then I realized that Ron Paul had a very consistent voting record throughout and his message was very consistent. And I started to see some contradictions amongst uh, political parties, uh, uh, both sides, Democrats and Republicans. One example is how in 2008 and 2012, the main um, Democrat of, you know, policy was against the war or against our foreign policy. And Ron Paul was as well as a Republican, which was he was like the only one, I think, on the Republican side. And I remember Obama promising to end the war, bring our troops home by August of his first term, the first year he was president. <laughs> and Ron Paul said he won't do that. You know, he's not going to change anything. He'll just continue the Bush policy. Well, so as it went along, o uh, Obama did continue the Bush policy. He sent troops overseas uh, for uh, another country that he said was a terrorist uh, nation and all this stuff and it seems like over time the Democrats forgot about the uh, the war <laughs> and it's not a big policy for them anymore well fast forward to Donald Trump and when Donald Trump was running um, I remember he was one of the least popular Republicans and also well I'll just say this, he did not speak the same language of Ron Paul. So I never voted for him. I never thought he was good. But for whatever reason, in the middle of that election, you know, I, I heard a lot of changed tunes from Alex Jones, from Rush Limbaugh, from others that seemed to early on in the Republican primaries were against him. And then all of a sudden, boom. They uh, changed their tune when he was in first place. I remember Ted Cruz was in second, and I, I always had my doubts on Ted Cruz as well. He sounded too much like Bush to me. 
but um, some suggested he was a Christian. So, you know, I would have understood if most Christians voted for him. Uh, Santorum was another one. Um, but again, both of those candidates sounded like part of the false left-right can uh, <laughs> paradigm. Uh, they were very, you know, Bush, Bushy. That sounds weird. Uh, George W. Bush-esque messages, you know. Um, Donald Trump was saying different things, but still, it wasn't what I believed in. It wasn't what Ron Paul believed in. It wasn't a libertarian message. And he seemed to have a strong military uh, vibe himself. Well, anyway, Alex Jones, who was against the false left-right paradigm, all of a sudden, he had Trump on his radio program, and he started to support uh, Donald Trump. And I can understand how Christians can vote for the lesser of two evils. Most Christians, I'm not talking about those uh, who have been red-pilled, so to speak, <laughs> but how the truth movement and, and many truth movement Christians have gotten deceived by Donald Trump. I don't know. This is just my opinion. So if you get upset, I'm just telling you from coming from the Ron Paul perspective. And Donald Trump was not giving that. And I never bought into Ron Paul, uh, to Donald Trump. So anyway, I just wanted to say all that. So it's the truth movement that I don't understand how they got deceived by Donald Trump. And then there's this QAnon thing that I think is a bunch of baloney. Just my opinion, how they're twisting. Well, also, well, I'll, there's that. QAnon is something else, which I think is disinfo. And then there's like Robert Jeffress and a lot of these preachers that claim that Donald Trump became a Christian. And I don't know, maybe he did, but the thing about it is, is I've never heard Donald Trump proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I've noticed this about many celebrities that are part of the What Would Jesus Do movement or whatever, and how a lot of them will basically share their quote-unquote testimony, but there's no gospel in it. And so I've started to notice and, and have wisdom to discern that. Uh, as well so you know it's not so much that I proclaim that he's not a Christian because of the way he acts I mean his morals because we all struggle and if he's a new Christian you know that would would not explain that would not be a problem for me to believe that he would still struggle with things it's that he's never proclaimed the gospel but I found it kind of strange that all of a sudden these evangelicals were all saying that he's the he's a Christian president. He's the new Cyrus. There's all this stuff going on. Well, I, the reason I brought all this up in this long intro that I'm giving here is because there's these peace treaties going on in the Middle East. It's called the Abraham Accord. And based on a lot, one of the major views of the Antichrist... Is, and the confirmation of the covenant is a lot of people believe that that's some sort of peace treaty in the Middle East. And I've heard that for years. Now, I'm not com completely convinced that's the right interpretation, but uh, 
that's another thing for another time. However, um, this is happening now, and I think as Christians we should keep an eye on it and at least have uh, vigilant, be vigilant. And um, the fact that Trump is in the middle of that should be concerning for Christians if they know anything about prophecy or have any views on, on that. Now, I'm not saying this is the confirmation of the covenant. I don't know yet. And I'm not saying he is the Antichrist. I don't know yet. There's some websites and people that give a lot of Bible verses that seem to point to Trump. But I'm not going to proclaim that yet. I think that if we see something about seven, a seven-year uh, peace treaty or uh, a temple being built shortly after in, in Jerusalem, and, of course, whoever proclaims themselves to be God in the temple, uh, those are uh, other prophecies about the Antichrist. Until that happens, I'm not going to proclaim anyone. I'm just saying he's in the middle of this, and a lot of Christians are voting for him, and I think that should be concerning. People need to keep an eye on it. That's all I'm saying, so I'm not proclaiming anything. I'm just saying we need to have some vigilance, keep watchful. So anyway, I had to get that out. I've been thinking about that recently. And uh, I think I'm going to skip the comedic bit for today and get right into uh, some William Cooper. And then I'll, uh, I'll cut it after every once in a while to add a commentary. But at the very beginning, um, he mentions the movie 2001. And that's all he says, but he's actually referring to 2001, A Space Odyssey. So just to give you some context. So here is some edits from William Cooper's Mystery Babylon series. You're listening to The Hour of the Time. I'm your host, William Cooper. When I first saw the movie 2001, I was amazed, awed, to say the least. The entire scope of the movie was overpowering and for most of the people of the world was completely baffling. Most people who saw that movie did not understand from beginning to end what it was that they had experienced, but they knew, everyone who saw it, knew that they had experienced something profound. That something had been communicated to the dark, deep recesses of their mind, which they did not understand, and indeed, which they were incapable of understanding. For you see, the movie was not meant for the profane, as most of us are called, by the adepts or the initiates or the priests of the mystery schools. For that movie was a message to those initiates who were well versed in the symbology and the mystery religion of an ancient religion that is practiced to this day in secret. Now I'm going to tell you the meaning of the symbology that you saw in the movie 2001 and then each and every listener should go to their local video rental store and watch the movie again from beginning to end, for it is the story of the entire human race according to the history of the mystery religion of ancient Babylon. Now most people that I knew attributed what happened 
to some extraterrestrial force. And they were receiving the exoteric interpretation, or that which is meant for the profane, those who are not illumined and cannot understand what it is they are seeing. But for the initiated, what they witnessed was the creation of the world by God and the impartation of knowledge to man, the forbidden knowledge, by Lucifer through his agent, Satan. For in the religion of the mystery schools, they believed that man was held prisoner in the Garden of Eden by an unjust and vindictive God, and that man was not told by this unjust and vindictive God that he could have the same powers. And man was set free from the bonds of ignorance by Lucifer through his agent Satan, and many believe that the two are the same, and that's okay because maybe they are, and that through the gift of intellect, man himself will become God. Okay, so I'd like to interject a few things right here. First of all, the uh, I edited out quite a bit about some symbolism that he talks about, like the obelisk and things. But also, um, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about the Luciferian philosophy. Oh, and, and if you want to hear the rest of it, obviously I've already referred you to the entire unedited uh, series link. Um, but anyway, the Luciferian philosophy where he talks about uh, that they believe that man was held prisoner in the Garden of Eden by an unjust and vindictive God until Lucifer, through his agent Satan, wanted to free mankind with intellect, uh, which is basically what the Bible says upside down from what the Bible actually says. And I actually heard that like in college about 20 years ago. And um, so uh, in a Wiccan track, there was a Wiccan club and the, somebody gave me a Wiccan track, which basically said this same idea that the serpent was telling the truth and God was lying so I was kind of aware of that, and that kind of stuck out to me when I listened to William Cooper's thing about eight to ten years later. So um, anyway, I just thought I would uh, interject a couple of those things. Um, obviously, evolution is another one that I had already been aware of. I had already listened to Kent Hovind before I heard William Cooper and was believed that evolution was another part of the deception. And the fact that they believe evolution is kind of interesting. All right, so let's continue. And that through the gift of intellect, man himself will become God. And then the story began of man's journey toward illumination. And everything in that movie was a symbol for something else. Now, the audience sitting who are what the adepts or the initiates call profane, did not understand what they saw. They thought that it was really about a journey into space by an astronaut or a group of astronauts and the bad things that happened to some of them and one survived. And none of them understood the significance of the obelisks, the monoliths, one on the moon, one in orbit around Jupiter and the ultimate transformation of the astronaut into a giant fetus floating in space. And to tell you the truth, when I first saw the movie, 
I didn't really understand it either, but I knew that there was something of such import there that I needed to know that I never stopped studying until I found out. And of course, one discovery leads to another. And every time I answered a question, a hundred more popped up until I reached a point, dear listeners, where I realized that if I studied for the entire rest of my life, there's not enough time in my life to learn what it is that I need to know. But I have learned enough along the way to impart some of my knowledge to you, and maybe you can help me find the ultimate truth that all of us ultimately learn to look for. Although not all of us ever realize that we are looking and most of us never even understand what it is that we are looking for, but some of us do understand that we are looking. The adepts or the initiates, the priesthood of the mystery school believe that they have found it and that they know all of these things, and I'm not really sure that they do. But I know that many have been misled along this path and are worshiping the fallen angel that we know as Lucifer. Many believe that Lucifer and Satan are the same, Many people believe that they are totally different entities and that Satan is evil and Lucifer is not. But Lucifer rebelled against God, according to the Bible, and was expelled from heaven and flung to the earth to be the master of the material world, the master of the earth. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning star? Now notice, Lucifer was called the son of the morning star. It was also called the morning star, and there is a great mystery here, because Christ also called himself the morning star. Now, how all that fits together, I do not know, but I have been told by those who have been initiated in the mystery schools that Christ and Lucifer are one and the same being. However, I cannot bring myself to believe that. What you believe, of course, is your own business and is not my intention to make you believe anything, but rather to impart to you what I have learned over many, many years of study into the secrets of those who worship the ancient mystery religions in secret for thousands of years. Okay, so a lot of that stuff he mentions about Lucifer I mentioned in the previous episode. If you haven't listened to episode 7 about the kingdom of Satan, I would recommend that you go back. Um, but he also, probably just in quoting what the mystery schools say to try to twist things, that, you know, that verse says the son of the morning star is what it calls Lucifer. Whereas they say that he, he calls himself the morning star, or he's called the morning star, but... Um, it it doesn't say that in the passage. It says son of the morning star. So I don't think it's 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 confusing to where it makes you think that Lucifer and Jesus are the same thing. So I just wanted to clarify that. And so, um, yeah, so we'll continue. And they are the ones who have been responsible, according to my research, for most of the scientific developments and the forward movement as far as material progress goes of the human race for they were the learners they were the ones who developed science they were the ones who hid their developments 
and used their science and their knowledge and their secrets to govern others, usually not as kings, but as advisors and as priests, and in all actuality, the powers behind the thrones in ancient times and even today. They have ruled from the shadows, and they call themselves the guardians of the secrets of the ages. And their first, their first religion was called astrotheology, or the worship of the heavens, and their first object of worship was the sun. The second object of worship was the moon. And everywhere you see the mystery schools or the mystery religion, you will see the symbols of the sun and the moon, also known as Osiris and Isis. Man's newfound intellect set him upon a quest that, according to those who say that they know, has never ended even unto this day. And the modern-day equivalent of this ancient mystery religion calls itself the order of the quest. And you will see it reflected in many of their outward exoteric branches where they disseminate information to the public or manipulate the public or deceive the public as the profane to them are nothing more than cattle to be herded and occasionally to be led to the slaughter. The message was that the new man will go into the future and the rest of us will perish. We will not be allowed into the future. If we are, it will be as slave labor until we are no longer useful, and then we will simply be exterminated. The message to the vast army of initiates in the mystery school was, we are on the threshold of the new age, and into this new age will march only one man. It is the new man. It is the illumined man. It is the man that is able to make the evolutionary jump to no more war, to no more rape, no more pillage, to the level in the mystery school known as 666. It is the number of a man. It is the illumined man to the mystery schools. To those of us who are Christians, it is the symbol, the mark of the beast, the indication that the Antichrist has arrived. And the beginning of the time predicted in the book of Revelation known as the Tribulation. Okay, so there's quite a bit to uh, talk about here. Um, first of all, I want to make it clear, uh, as I mentioned in the past episode, that the one actually behind all this is spiritual. It's Satan um, and the fallen angels, uh, you know, demons, and they are manipulating the people that are in these mystery schools. So I want to make that clear, uh, because oftentimes the focus can be put on uh, the people and not the spiritual side. I don't remember if we discussed the mark of the beast last time. I mentioned some of Revelation briefly, but um, of course, if you're familiar with Bible prophecy, the mark of the beast includes, uh, you know, the number 666. And anyone who takes the mark or the number of his name, uh, they they will not be in the uh, Lamb's Book of Life, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So anyway, um, it's interesting that the Luciferians believe that the number of the illumined man 
is 666. The Bible says it's the number of the of man, um, and it is the number of the beast. So it's kind of like, uh, obviously the Bible looks at it in a negative way, and the Luciferians look at it in a positive way once again. And it's all connected to this evolving to the next state of evolution that you can become as gods as they they would believe so somehow this mark of the beast if these are the ones bringing this about which i think they are somehow this mark of the beast will have something to do with a man becoming uh seen as a god uh you know there there seems to be an indication of worship there and perhaps he will have powers that i think will be demonic that will make people think that he's somehow some kind of a superman so uh just a lot of uh things to think about there so let's continue i do not advise you what you should believe or not believe but i do advise you that we all need to learn as much as we can about everything that we can because one thing i have learned in my life is that most of what we have ever been taught has been a lie and that whoever these people are and I know who they are and I will impart that knowledge to you who are the priests the adepts and the initiates and the mystery schools they are in control and they are shaping the future and that future will affect all of us so we had better learn as much about them as we can you cannot identify an enemy unless you know the enemy and you cannot fight a battle if you know nothing about the battle tactics of your opponent Tonight, ladies and gentlemen, we begin the origin, the history, the dogma, and the identity of the ancient mystery religions which are now known as the mystery schools, the order of the quest, Freemasonry, the ancient order of the rose and cross, the Knights Templar, the sovereign and military order of the Knights of Malta, the order of St. John of Jerusalem, the Priory de Sion, the Thule Society are sometimes known as the Thule Society. The Order, the Skull and Bones, the Russell Trust, the Jason Society, the Scroll and Key, the Illuminati, and I could go on and on and on and on. But the most important thing to realize is that they all have been collectively known throughout the ages as the Mystery Schools, the Illuminati, which literally means illumined ones, international socialism, communism. They are all one and the same, as you will come to know. And you will understand perfectly how they've been able to infiltrate all of our society. What you hear tonight does not necessarily reflect my views, our beliefs, our religion. We have to begin in the beginning with every story and every history and we have to begin at the beginning of mankind and the beginning is the beginning according to the mystery religion and they believe wholeheartedly that man is a product of evolution not of an extraterrestrial race and not of the creation of some benevolent God. They believe that the tree-dwelling ancestors of man were among the most intelligent beings of their distant age. 
And when these creatures finally abandoned the trees and walked fully upright, freeing their hands to serve as implements of their minds as well as their bodies, there began the most successful evolutionary drive toward higher intelligence ever witnessed in nature. As ground dwellers, these creatures were easy victims of the great predators who hunted them down by day and surprised them at night as they huddled in clearings or in caves. They could not compete in strength, ferocity, or speed with their attackers. Armed with little except their hands and what their complex brains enabled them to do with those hands, they had to think or die. For untold thousands of years, most of them met early, violent deaths. Only a few in each generation had the good fortune and the ability to outwit their enemies. And these favored ones survived long enough to have and rear offspring. The unwary, maladroit, or stupid died early. Their offspring, if they had any, were left to starve or be eaten by predators. Natural selection was operating on the earliest types of man with grimmest intensity. Perhaps no other extent creature has undergone so severe and protracted a period of selective elimination. Yet, here and there, small groups managed to survive because they had the intelligence to use sticks, stones, and clubs to defend themselves. Crude and puny as these implements were, they were weapons, and their possessors were the first creatures who could kill without having to come in direct contact with their antagonist. As the great beasts grew larger and either faster or more formidable, man became ever more watchful, ever more successful in pitting his wits against mass and power, more and more adept at slipping out of trouble, and as the challenge grew greater, so did his brain. For the laggards on both sides got left behind in the race for the future, and we are still engaged in that race for the future. And this means a further development of the human mind. Natural selection favoring better knife makers went on for hundreds of thousands of years, according to those who guard the secrets of the ages, and even according to modern science. However incomplete our knowledge of human ancestry, there is scarcely any doubt that the development of brain power of intelligence was the decisive force in the evolutionary process which culminated in the appearance of the species to which we belong. Natural selection, they believe, has brought about the evolutionary trends towards increasing brain power because brain power confers enormous adaptive advantages on its possessors. It is obviously brain power, not body power, which makes man by far the most successful biological species which living matter has produced. Okay, so some quick thoughts on that, uh, what we just heard. Uh, first, he mentioned several mystery schools, and you can do some research on those to make sure uh, what he's saying is, is correct. Um, and then he goes on to talk about what they believe. And so far, what we've heard is a lot of evolution, just the idea of the original thought and those that are more advanced can rule over others or fight off others and things and so that's kind of the way they see things and from a biblical perspective we don't believe that that is the case we don't believe that man has gotten smarter and better and faster i mean in the last few hundred years we've had an increase in technology but that doesn't mean that man is smarter now than they were 5,000 years ago in the sense of 
uh, being able to use their brains the same way, if that makes sense. Uh, in other words, if you transported somebody from 6,000 years ago to today and basically uh, took, they went to school, they started going to school, they could learn everything we learn now, if not more so. <laughs> uh, you know, when we, we look at Egyptian history, for example, there's some very advanced buildings and things. And if you watch the History Channel and stuff, they might suggest that, well, they must have had contact with aliens to have such advanced technology because that's the only way they can explain it. If evolution is true, then there's no way they could be smart enough to do that. Uh, if it was the Egyptians, it might have been before Egypt, actually, the pyramids and things. But um, anyway, so uh, I don't think evidence bears out that man has gotten smarter over time and better uh, but that's what they believe so that's what he's explaining now what we're about to hear is perhaps the thing that can easily test your faith if you're not careful that's why I started the episodes previous concerning biblical evidence so what they're going to do is start to twist scripture to make you think that the Bible is just an allegory for astrology. Even with man's new weapons and tools, it did not take him very long to decide that in this world the single greatest enemy to be feared was the darkness of night and all the unknown dangers that came with it. Simply stated, man's first enemy was darkness. Understanding this one fact alone, one can readily see why the greatest and most trustworthy friend of the human race could ever have was, by far, heaven's greatest gift to the world, that glorious rising orb of day, the sun. And with this simple truth understood, we can now begin to unravel the most ancient and still the most successful religion upon the face of of this earth. Its success lies in its ability to remain hidden from the rest of the people. But first let me assure you folks that no people of the ancient world believed the sun to be God. In point of fact, every ancient culture and nation on earth have all used the sun as the most logically appropriate symbol to represent the glory of the unseen creator of the heavens. In the Old Testament it says, quote, the heavens are declaring the glory of God, unquote. That's in Psalms 19, verse 1. In the Old Testament, quote, the sun of righteousness will arise, unquote. Malachi, chapter 4, verse 2. The ancient peoples reasoned that no one on earth could ever lay claim of ownership to the great orb of day. It must belong to the unseen creator of the universe. It became, figuratively speaking, not man's, but God's sun. Truly, God's sun was the light of the world. As I stated before, folks, in the dark, cold of night, man realized his utter vulnerability to the elements. Each night, mankind was forced to wait for the rising of the sun to chase away the physical and mental insecurity brought on by the darkness. Therefore, the morning sun focused man's attention on heavenly dependence for his frail, short existence on earth, and in doing so, it became the appropriate symbol of divine benevolence 
from heaven. For without the sun there was no light, there was no warmth, and nothing could grow or live upon the face of this earth. So just as a small fire brought limited light into man's own little world of darkness, likewise the great fire of day served the whole earth with its heavenly presence. For this reason it was said that the God of the Bible was a consuming fire in heaven, and so he was. It was accepted by all that man was bound to a life on earth, but the sky was the abode of God's Son. He resided up there in heaven. Ancient man saw in his male offspring his own image and likeness, and his own existence as a father was proved by the person of his son. It was assumed that God's son was but a visible representative of the unseen creator in heaven. So it was said, quote, when you have seen the son, you have seen the father, unquote. Said another way, quote, the father is glorified in his son, unquote. Okay, so there's a lot of deception in, in this. Now, William Cooper does clarify it later, but Jordan Maxwell basically teaches that the Bible is based on sun worship, and the Zeitgeist documentary also proclaims that. William Cooper makes it clear several times that this is what the mystery schools believe, and also makes it clear that he's talking about the S-U-N, and... It's this is if you put a little bit of thinking into this, you can figure out the deception because they interject the word S-U-N and S-O-N interchangeably, which kind of deceives people in English. But in other languages, the word S-U-N and S-O-N don't sound the same uh, in Hebrew or Greek or, or uh, Aramaic or any other biblical language. Um, and as far as I know from Egyptian or Babylonian, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure in Hebrew and Greek, the words S-O-N and S-U-N don't sound the same. So what they're doing here is only, would only be able to work in English. So it's, it takes just a little bit of thinking to realize the stupidity of this argument, but Again, if you're just kind of passively listening to it, there's a lot of people deceived by this kind of thing. Anyway, he's going he's gonna, to uh, mention more of this here now. Uh, but I just wanted to make that clear that, um, and William Cooper is, you know, he says he, this is what they believe several times. But... Um, I just want to make this clear because this this can be a point of confusion and a lot of people have uh, basically claimed that William Cooper believes this stuff and he's the you know believe he believes all this new age stuff but they haven't listened to what he said in context because he's quoting what they believe and so all right so let's continue ancient man even with his limited intelligence at that time, had no problem understanding that all life on earth depended directly on life-giving energy from the sun. Consequently, all life was lost without the sun. It followed that God's son was nothing less than man's savior. Since energy from the sun gave life, and we sustained our very existence by taking energy in from our food, which came directly from God's Son. The Son must give up its life, supporting energy, so that we may continue to live. Now, I 
know that if you are intelligent out there listening, you are making some connections here. You see, the mystery schools believe that Christianity is a perversion of the mysteries. And while it was plainly true that our life came from and was sustained each day by our Savior, God's Son, it was and would be true only as long as the Son would return each morning. And our hope of salvation would be secure only in a risen Savior. For if he did not rise from his grave of darkness, all would be lost. All the world waited for his imminent return each morning. The Father would never leave us at the mercy of this world of darkness. The heavenly promise was surely that, quote, he would come again, unquote, to light our path and save those lost in the darkness. Logically, even if man himself died, as long as the sun comes up each day, life on earth will continue forever. Therefore, it was said in the ancient texts that everlasting life was the gift that the Father gives through his Son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that we may have life everlasting on earth. And the ancient text did not mean for you personally, but on earth everlasting life. That is the interpretation of the mystery schools. Since evil and harm lurked at every turn in the fearful dark of night, all evil or harmful deeds were naturally the works of darkness. And with the return of the sun each morning, man felt more secure in his world and therefore was at peace. Therefore, God's son was, with his warm rays of hope, the great, quote, prince of peace, unquote. And, of course, the reverse was equally true. The evil of night was ruled over by none other than, quote, the prince of darkness, unquote. Hence, evil is of the dark or the devil. Okay, notice what they do here. So, if you remember that they believe that man was held prisoner in the Garden of Eden by an unjust and vindictive God, to them, that is the devil. To them, that is uh, darkness and light represents knowledge or intellect so uh, oftentimes you know of course they he also said that some of them believe that Lucifer and Jesus are the same being somehow they have twisted what Jesus has said too um, and and there's this kind of idea that Jesus was kind of uh, more of a graceful kind person whereas the old testament god was which isn't accurate if if you um i mean jesus was kind but i'm saying that the old testament god was like really mean and angry and all this stuff and that jesus was full of grace and mercy but the point is they're the same if you really dig deep into the teachings of jesus and the new testament there's a lot of teachings about hell and you know, uh, the final judgment. Um, and also in the Old Testament, there's a lot of grace. So it's not, uh, it's not, it's not different in that regard. But so, you know, basically understand that oftentimes when they think of darkness, they think of the God of the Bible. And when they think of light, the sun, they think of Lucifer. So I just wanted to clarify that from their perspective, what they're trying to say, even though they're trying to allegorize the Bible to mean something that it doesn't. It was only a short step to see that 
the light of God's Son equated with righteousness and truth, and evil with darkness. From then on, it was simple to understand. Light was good, dark was bad, and the priests of the ancient mystery religion always followed the light. They always looked toward the east. They considered themselves to be illumined. That being true, then the great orb of day, God's Son, could rightly say of itself that, quote, I am the light and the truth, unquote. We should all, in their words, not mine, give thanks to the Father for sending us His Son, spelled S-U-N, in case some of you are getting confused. In every instance where I have mentioned the word Son, it has been in reference to the Son, S-U-N. For the peace and tranquility he brings to our life is even called solace. Solace is from the word solar, which means sun. Are you beginning to see the light? <laughs> we now have before us two cosmic brothers, one very good and one very bad. One brings the truth to light with the light of truth. The other is the opposite or in opposition to the light, the opposer the prince of the world of darkness. It is at this point we come to Egypt. More than 3,000 years before Christianity began, the early morning sun savior was pictured in Egypt as the newborn babe. The infant savior's name was Horus. Okay, so what he's about to mention now is another deception that Jordan Maxwell and Zeitgeist uh, believe is true. And I've seen a, a documentary called Zeitgeist Refuted. And there's a f actually a few that are Christian-made documentaries that are really good on this. And, of course, William Cooper says this is just what the mystery schools believe and not what he believes. But basically they're going to try to claim that the story of Jesus and the 12 disciples, Jesus born of a virgin, uh, the 12 disciples being crucified and raising from the dead three days later, and all this, a lot of other things about Jesus was a copy of ancient pagan things uh, that were all based on sun worship. However, there's no historical evidence for this being the case. So I just wanted to make that clear. The early morning sun, our newborn babe, was pictured in two ways. The dove, known as the bringer of peace. The hawk the god of war who punishes the enemies of God. Today in government we still use these terms doves and hawks. And that's how powerful this hidden religion is, is that we use the terms of this religion even today and know it not. At daybreak this wonderful newborn child is of course born again. Hallelujah. Horus is risen. That is what hallelujah means. Even today when the sun comes up, we see it on the Horus Risen, or Horizon. His life was also divided into 12 parts, or 12 Horus Hours, the 12 signs of the Zodiac. But now, what about the evil brother of God's son, that old prince of darkness himself? In the Egyptian belief system, he was called Set, or sometimes Typhon. The world of ancient man kept track of times and seasons by the movement of the sun daily, monthly, and yearly. For this, the sundial was devised. 
Not only the daily movement of the sun was tracked on the round dial, but the whole year was charted on a round calendar dial. Examples are ancient Mexican, Mayan, Inca, Aztec, Sumerian, Babylonian, Assyrian, Egyptian, Celtic, or Celtic as some pronounce it, Aryan, etc. And with this method, certain new concepts emerged in the mind of ancient man. Since the earth experienced four different seasons, all the same and equal in time each year, the round calendar was divided into four equal parts. This represented the complete story of the life of God's Son. This is also why we have in the Bible only four Gospels. Of this point there can be no doubt, for Tertullian and many early church fathers stated this exact fact themselves in their own writings. And this, the mystery school claims, is why the famous painting of the Last Supper pictures the twelve followers or houses of the sun in four groups of three, the seasons, with the sun in the center alone. On the round surface of the yearly calendar, you draw a straight line directly across the middle, cutting the circle in half, one end being the point of the winter solstice, the other end being the point of the summer solstice. Then draw another straight line crossing the first one, one end of the new line being the spring equinox, the other end being the autumn equinox. You now have the starting points for each of the four seasons. This is referred to by all major encyclopedias and reference works, both ancient and modern, as the cross of the zodiac. Thus the life of God's Son is on the cross. This is why we see the round circle of the sun on the crosses of Christian churches. The next time you pass a Christian church, look for the circle, sun, on the cross. On December the 22nd, the sun going south reaches its lowest point in the sky, our winter solstice. At that lowest point, the sun stops moving on the sundial for three days, December 22nd, December 23rd, and December 24th, in the southern constellation known as the Southern Cross. Hence our Savior, dead for three days, died on the cross. The Southern Cross constellation, that is. This is the only time in the year, folks, that the sun actually stops its movements in our sky, according to the mystery schools. On the morning of December the 25th, the sun begins its annual journey back to us in the northern hemisphere, bringing, of course, our spring. Therefore, on December 25th, the sun is born again. And to this day, his worshipers still celebrate his birthday. Okay, so just a couple of things to clarify here. So first of all, I was, I think on the Zodiac Refuted documentary, you can find this, but they mentioned that in the ancient times, they didn't call it the cross of the Zodiac, but the Zodiac wheel. And also, the Bible never says that Jesus was born on December 25th. I think that was something that became a tradition based on Roman holidays uh, and Christianity kind of mixing in with that. And perhaps there was also a mixing in of astrology with, with the Bible and uh, December 25th and the Zodiac and all that stuff. So... Um, just uh, some things to keep in mind. Well, we're running low on time here, so we'll stop this for now. And we will continue more on the Mystery Babylon uh, commentary of the William Cooper series in the next episode. Thank you and have a wonderful day.
This is the most awesomest podcast of all time. I am your host, Rob Hedrick. This podcast is brought to you by Proverbs 16 18. Pride goeth before destruction. <laughs>